Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Cavalry Audio. I'm Clint Emerson and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast? Where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? That's right. Can You Survive This Podcast? Actually, I was, I had the AT&T guys putting in Wi-Fi here at this new studio. So if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll kind of see all the new stuff. And uh, the guy walks in, he goes, hey, I actually listened to your podcast. And I was like, whoa, you're like one of probably five people. Um, but before we get any more into uh, how popular I am with the five people that listen to this podcast, uh, we have a, an awesome guest. And like uh, Chad Prather pointed out, he's like, Clint, I've noticed you've either got special, very special, or awesome. So uh, my next guest is definitely awesome. Uh, he became a game warden for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife after earning a bachelor's and a master's at San Jose State University. Then he was inducted into the San Jose State University Justice Studies Hall of Fame in 2018. He's written a bunch of books. John Norris, welcome to the show. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, Clint. Thanks so much for having me, man. And I got to tell you, I saw the post on your new studio this week. Bad <laughs> ass, man. Oh, thanks. I've got to get down and see you in person when I make it out to some uh, fellow friends out there in Texas. It looks great, man. And thanks for having me on the show. I've been following you for a while and good to be here. All right. Awesome. Yeah, I've seen your stuff. I've seen you on mic drop. He was in the warehouse next door. I think you came in for that one, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I've heard, uh, good things about you and the things you've done and, uh, and I've heard you got some great stories. So I'm looking to hear some of those tonight. Um, so let's get started with the rapid fire. Sure. Here we go. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay. Poppy or marijuana. Oh man. Marijuana. It's my bread <laughs> and butter, man. My field. That's what I figured. <laughs> that was a good one. All right. Wildlife officer or game warden. 
Game Warden with Wildlife Officer being synonymous, but Game Warden is the title we like. Yes. Okay. We're going to get a dig into that because there's a lot of confusion here. And, and this yep. one kind of goes with it. Warden or Conservation Officer? Ooh. I'm going to say Warden selfishly, yeah. but I'm going to justify why we use Conservation Officer for Universal later. I'd see okay. where that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, bears or Cats? Ooh, cats, like the big cats. predators. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, law enforcement or public safety? Law enforcement. Yeah. It's probably more fun. Um, drug dealer or pimp? <laughs> drug dealer. Again, my bread and butter. <laughs> Great All right. <laughs> Tranquilizers or bullets? Ooh, bullets. <laughs> okay uh animals or humans humans dogs or cats dogs canines all the way baby yep running shoes or hiking boots Ooh, um that's kind of an even split but i'm gonna favor hiking boots hiking okay. boots yeah, yeah i figure you might answer that one and then just quick off the top of your head questions because i want to dig into these best piece of gear in your job that you've ever had it's kind of split clan i'd say a good blade and yep. the right weapon and the right weapon system especially for the special operations nature of what i did the last half of the career for sure all right we'll dig into that okay and then um the everyday carry what were like your top five items when you went out in the field that you made sure you always had oh on edc it was always a trauma kit you know, a yep. real, real thorough trauma kit, especially when we formed up Met, you know, going from all the things we learned from you guys working in the sandbox in the GWAT. Um, we started doing that type of stuff inland in California, especially. Um, definitely a good blade. Yep. Um, definitely a good weapon system, carbine or handgun. Um, water purification system, rather it be a uh, filter straw, another filter, a UV uh, along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a navigation system, rather it be a compass or later on a GPS. Yeah. Well, we're going to dig in that because a lot of times you guys are kind of out. Sometimes you're on your own. Sometimes you're with teams. So uh, it'll be interesting to learn that stuff. Okay. Circling back to the top, what gave poppy versus marijuana, you pick marijuana, you know, give our audience the obvious why. Yeah. I mean, basically in 2004 and 2005, I went from the traditional game warden role of hunting and fishing enforcement, stream alteration, teaching hunter education, all those great things we love to do as conservation officers, game wardens. Um, <laughs> and then I found my first drug cartel trespass cannabis grow in the Silicon Valley where I was born and raised in those foothills. So basically, and again, I want to preface all this with, we're not demonizing legitimate cannabis. We're not demonizing weed overall. We're talking about strictly the illegal always banned trespass grows that the drug cartels from Mexico are doing on public and private lands. They're stealing water. They're diverting precious waterways that feed animals, that fortify streams. That's our drinking water source. And they're using EPA banned toxics and pesticides, actual nerve agents that are so deadly for, uh, for, for insecticide or denicide purposes. They were banned by our EPA here in America 20 years ago, but these guys are putting this on all the cannabis in these grow sites letting it dry onto the bud. And then it's being sold all over the black market, all over the United States oh, to unknowing wow. consumers that's tainted. So we actually have a legitimate cannabis industry on our fight on our side. And in California, my old home state, the golden state, we're a regulated cannabis state. And as you know, buddy, it's like the litmus test for the world because California is a very effective and very, you know, 
successful weed growing state because we're one of only six Mediterranean climates on the globe. So what we regulate in California, right and wrong and different, however that's going, is a litmus test for the world, really, when it comes to cannabis regulation. Um, and we also have the biggest presence of cartel growers doing the worst side of the dark side of that whole thing, tainting the industry, if you will, because it grows so well and because they're so close to the Mexican border where they started. So uh, cannabis enforcement, cannabis issues, cannabis use, CBD, all of that stuff. I'm, I'm embedded in all levels of that um, with the legitimate industry. And then also looking at the dark side of it with what these cartels and trespass growers are doing. So that's why I had to answer marijuana over the poppy thing. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and again, brother, not to say that the whole poppy heroin fentanyl uh, you know, methamphetamine, because these same cartel groups that are growing all this tainted weed are doing all of the white dope and all the poison fentanyl, the, you know, counterfeit prescription yeah. opioids that are killing thousands, if not many more across the nation right now, in addition to human trafficking and the children's sex trafficking, it's all one big enterprise. And they're just doing different crimes to make a ton of freaking money at the expense of public safety. And for me and guys like you that love the outdoors, decimating our wildlife resources. So definitely what I call a tier one target, if you will, throughout America, not only California. Wow. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to digging into that more. And, you know, poppy was like Afghanistan, you know, it was everywhere. Right. It's uh, once again, grows like weeds. Oh, that's right. They are weeds. Okay. <laughs> uh, wildlife officer or game warden. And you, uh, you went with game warden, but it's like can, kind of confusing, right? So, it's, yes. what, what, yeah, are there differences or, uh, you know, a, a wildlife officer works for a game warden or is there a hierarchy? What's the deal there? Yeah, I've never had that question asked, bud, and it is an excellent question because we debate this within agency circles all the time. And we're called, like we changed our name in California Department of Fish and Wildlife back from California Department of Fish and Game about a decade ago. And honestly, <laughs> the guys on the ground that are game wardens and grew up hunting and fishing and surviving and everything, we went, why are we called wildlife officers? Because game warden worked just fine. Fish and game warden made a good sense because the word game has a title showing legitimate conservation as a policy, right? That yeah. we're going to hunt and harvest animals for the sake of the entire species balanced. So we don't have predation. We don't have, you know, uh, we keep poaching in check. We regulate game for the benefit of everybody, but we consume game for positive reasons. Um, and then as certain parts of demographics of certain states got away from a consumptive conservation model, and started to go more preservationist where they didn't want to see animals hunted, let's say, or ever taken, shot, killed, harvested for, for basically food and protein. It became a change of perception by title, wildlife, not game, uh, right? Yeah. So fish and wildlife. So that's, that's Clint, that's where it really started. And so there was a lot of pushback from line staff, all of us, when we changed that name, but, you know, going to my old home state, the environmental issues have now exceeded conservation and hunting and fishing. I mean, cannabis enforcement has taken over about one fifth of our entire wardens force in California and of over 500 game wardens, a hundred or more are now dedicated to cannabis enforcement because so many environmental crimes and compliance checks needed Damn. around, around that world of industry. So um, I like game warden though. I like fishing game. Now I'm working nationally, obviously, and this is a national issue. So I'm working with agencies across the nation and even overseas where the Midwest up here in Montana, where you're out in Texas, obviously, those are very conservation oriented states, which is my personal preference, obviously, given my background and passion. Um, 
So you see that game warden term used a lot more mm-hmm. in Texas. You see it used up here in Montana, the Midwest, some places up in the Northeast, especially. Um, the podcast that I co-host with my retired lieutenant partner, Wayne Saunders out of New Hampshire, they're a very consumptive state. So on mm-hmm. the Warden's Watch podcast and the Thin Green Line podcast, we always stress legitimate conservation as a model of protecting everything out there because it just does. You know, when you take the emotionality out of uh, killing animals or not killing animals. So it's it's a fine line now as we go a little more urbanized throughout the country and we see less and less consumptive use in some states. If that yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good answer, man. And it's uh, it kind of helps define all that and leads into the next one, which I don't think we need to spend. But because you already kind of answered it is, you know, the warden sounds to me like sheriff. Right. It's, yeah. it's a it's a yeah. it's a it's a title that <laughs> fits the job and it sounds better than this cons- conservation officer. Yeah. That yeah. whole conservation thing, you know, for, you know, most of like my buddies, conservation, like, what do you mean? Is you digging plastic out of the river or what? <laughs> right. um, so, you know, I think it like it almost if you don't know the world, then you hear the word conservation. And it just doesn't sound as cool as warden. That's for damn sure. Um, but, yeah, you've you've done good explaining that. Uh, and we went with bears versus cats. You went with the big cats. Yeah, I went with the big cats largely because I dealt with a lot of problem outlines in California. Um, I ended up having to to dispatch four of them throughout my career for either public safety or deprivation problems. Um, and and, it's, and, it's and just real- for the list- listeners, dispatch means to kill. To yeah, kill. I had to kill four yes. outlines. Clint, exactly. How big were these guys? Um, some of them were, you know, in the hundred pound range. So, you know two or three years old, maybe a little younger than that, what we call sub-adults that have gotten separated out from their parents. They're in a semi-urban uh, slash quasi-rural you know, transition area. So they're basically feeding on livestock. They're feeding on pets. They're going for easy, easy prey. And in effect, you know, taking legitimate livestock or pets from, from a family, but also putting themselves where they're getting very comfortable around people. And then they become uh. a, you know, a public safety danger. And in that, we always had that issue in California where back when I started, I'll date myself way back in 92, um, in the early nineties, right. When I was starting my career, that's when the California mountain lion became a protected mammal and protected legislatively from it having any hunting conservation plan around it. So we as an agency just kind of had to ebb and flow from the legislature and what we could do with these problem cats. And then as the population in California grew up and the green belts and wildlands started to get kind of bottlenecked, um, we just started to have more and more cat problems, you know, basically interacting with, like I said, livestock and house pets and people, mountain bikers, hikers, joggers. We had a couple fatalities in my early game warden career days, Clint, when, uh, we had Iris McKenna and Barbara Schoener, both two ladies. One was a jogger. The other was running a group of uh, Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts. And both were killed in parks by being crouched down uh, by cats. And so we had to hunt those cats down and kill them. Um, because once a cat's done that to somebody, you know, you're not going to reintegrate them into the wild. And, you know, it's really not the cat's fault. The cat's just doing what they're bred to do what their genetic code says and mm-hmm. they're a magnificent predator but like any predator or any animal throughout the country they need a little bit of management a little pressure from us as the apex predator because we have infringed on so much of that territory and they're going to interact with us whether we like it or not um, we have the same thing with the timber wolf up here the grizzly bears up here right here in the most remote part of montana where i live now and i work with a lot of the 
game wardens, you know, of Montana that are uh, dealing with that all the time. These problem grizzly bears come out of Glacier National Park that are just, uh, you know, absolutely impervious to pe- seeing people as threats. Yeah. Then they make, you know, maybe a threatening move, a potential attack, and then they got to dump them in areas like our backyard. So wow. as hunters and anglers, uh, you know, we're in the middle of our whitetail rut hunt right now, and I'll be out at, you know, 3.34 in the morning in the headlamp climbing into one of my holes to hunt. And I got to bring the pistol and the tack light and everything else with the rifle because you never know what you're going to run across, man. We're in grizzly country, and some of these <laughs> yeah. bears have been dumped to my backyard, brother. And the same thing <laughs> with the pinker wolves. But, man, you just got it. You got to respect these predators and what they do in this world of, uh, of development and urbanization. It's, it's really impressive. What would you do if a big cat jumped on you? Well, John Norris knows more after the break. Yeah. So what would you say dealing with, okay, someone in California or anywhere really in these, uh, these mountain lions, they're no joke. I mean, I've heard that that's probably it's, they're scarier than a bear because you don't ever see it happen. Is that right? And what, how, what's the best way to deal with a big cat like that? You know, it's interesting. I wrote an article for a recoil off grid, which is my publishing brand that I write for. They kind of support and uh, help produce my fingering line um, uh, TV or film series. And one thing I like about the off grid guys is they hit me up as a, as a retired game warden and said, Hey man, what would you do in this scenario? And they set the scenario back in, uh, back down in Southern California in the Cleveland national forest, where I started down in the inland empire, Riverside County that I used to patrol and actually dispatched killed my first cat on depredation and the idea is if if you you can avoid a cat a cat attack by doing so many preventative things like you are so you know you articulate so well in your books and your training preparedness is everything and you find yourself not in a lot of problems if you just have situational awareness you prepare your kit you're aware of any everything around you and you don't stumble into something that you can't get out of. And that's largely what we have. We have a, a, somebody that's a little oblivious to the trail. They don't spend a lot of outdoor time. Um, they're not making the noise they should. They're not watching their perimeter. Cats are sneaky anyway. And yeah. you know they're going to do what a cat does. They're going to crouch down like a house cat. They're going to sit behind brush. They're going to wait for deer to ambush, you know, even for a big cat to take down prey like a deer or anything else they still have to get close. You know, it's not an easy kill, even for these more sedate, you know, quote unquote, plains game animals. Um, Mountain lions miss a lot of prey that they go after because the angle isn't right. Those animals have some awareness. They have some speed. They're dodgy. So same thing with humans. If you set yourself up and don't go into areas that are too thickly brushed, you're not making enough noise. You're not looking around at the sign. Um, They're fairly visible if you pay attention. You know, yeah. if you pay attention, especially when you're going into brushy, dense trails and it's just situationally aware and looking at, you know, what's beyond that cover and concealment and if there's a threat there. So mountain bikers that are just whipping down a trail, they've got their, you know, earbuds on and they're rocking out hard. Then they stop and slow down. They still got their earbuds going because they get a flat tire and they happen to be a mountain lion country. They may never see that attack going because if they bend down and now all their oblique and peripheral vision is gone, that cat sees a, gets a prey instinct like they're seeing a deer or normal prey and they go for people sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's typically what we've learned. So people need to realize, stand tall, make noise, don't crouch down. And in the fatalities we had with those two awesome women and, and, and a tragedy is they were both crouched down, either in a crouch position, like an animal bent down to feed a prey animal or running at a, at a normal gait 
without attention on where the threat was. And that animal just vectored in on a prey response, like they were getting a deer that was oblivious, but just moving at a steady pace. So we see that it's not necessarily a human attack directly. It's a prey response to anything. Yeah. Anything that's running, they go, oh, I'm going to chase it. There it is. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, And that's that's the issue. So you you need to be aware of, you know, what you're going into and and respond accordingly, um, how you behave when you're out there. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, what you're pointing out is what we all have, and that's the mammalian reflex. You know, it's the reason yes. why you don't drown immediately. It's the reason when you see a herd of people run by, you feel like you should be running with them. Yeah. If, yeah. And if someone's running away from you, you kind of look around like, I'm a, should I chase that person? <laughs> so, you know, it's like, at least that's me. Oh, okay. That guy's running away. Maybe I should chase him. No, never mind. I'll shoot him instead. That's easier. Um, okay. So, yeah, those that's good cat knowledge. Um so now law enforcement, you know, versus public safety, right? You guys are responsible for both, but you chose law enforcement. Yeah. And I did that just because it's my bread and butter. You know, yeah. it just comes back to what I spent 28 years doing. And especially when we got into the special operations realm of things, you know, that title, especially for a game warden to do the job we were doing was very unorthodox for, you know, everything from military veterans to other allied agency law enforcement guys. But the bottom line is game wardens, are highly trained they're highly professional and any good game warden worth their salt is just like you brother thinking on their feet adequately prepared um because they're alone all the time Mm -hmm. you know and here we are three four five miles behind a lock gate or in a national forest in a patrol truck and maybe we have our canine with us or maybe we're alone sometimes we'll have a partner when we're doing some details but mostly you know until i developed the met team and we had a tactical unit of 12 operators always looking over each other's backs and watching each other um do what we do uh i was alone all the time for like 15 17 years and you get in some hairy shit man when you're by yourself and you you learn not to go into some hairy shit because of what you see out there and you're by yourself and you just don't have the backup. It's one of those things of that preparedness we talk about that you, you speak so well about of assessing what the threat is, assessing your environment and determining, can I move on in this? Am I going to engage? Am I going to make contact or am I going to back out right now and be a trained observer and go on overwatch and make some good observations and call in the cavalry later or follow this as kind of a stealth mode. Um, And it's all that, you know, rather than being tactically proficient, which of course is critical, it's really up here, you know, being so smart in your mind of knowing how to proceed. And there's been many cases I did not make because I was by myself, whether it be multiple poachers, guys inebriated, guys with weapons, spotlighting deer at night, uh, going in on a small scout to recon a cartel grow site. And I've got two growers with AK-47s and machetes working through a creek, showing situational awareness and some tactical savvy. And I've got an unarmed biologist I grew up with doing his master's thesis on steelhead trout in a creek I grew up on. And we're, we're looking for a gross, we're looking for a problem because water's diverted. And I go over this in the first chapter of the first book, War in the Woods, that got us into this whole crazy world, Clint. And now I'm face to face with these guys and they're working tactically down a streamline, tending plants and checking their perimeter with some situational awareness. And I go, am I going to make contact on this? Heck no. Mm. I've got a civilian that's a buddy. I got no radio coverage. I can't radio out. I can't get cell phone out. We are in a deep, deep canyon of a pristine waterway. We need to get the heck out of there. Stay, stay tight, assess it, come back with a big team. Um, and, and that was a, just a typical, typical operation of what a game worn faces being, yeah. being most of the time. So no, I, th- I don't think people know what 
what I would call it's a pretty cool job, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're out on your own, you know, all the success, all the failure resides solely on you, which is like, I love that kind of shit. And uh, you're out in the wild with the wild. And uh, it sounds like, you know, really the first part of your career was all about public safety where you're doing all the traditional warden stuff. And then the the set, the last half was more of the law enforcement. I mean, it's all encompassed as law enforcement, but you know, I'm trying to break it down and keep it simple. But when you get into the special operations, actually kicking doors and taking care of bad people doing bad things, then, you know, that's really where law enforcement, I think, stands out, right? Yeah, I, I think that's what it is. I think when we when you have a targeted enemy and a targeted mission and excuse me, what I loved about all the development we did with tactical units out of the Silicon Valley, whether it be the sheriff's office, other SWAT teams, other sniper units, what we were doing in the Silicon Valley and building those bridges for all those years of being just the traditional game wardens, ultimately Clint led to forming our own team and being ready with that and having guys, you know, with military experience like yourself, we had a SEAL team veteran of 20 years that was a sniper as well. And I was a sniper instructor in, in, in law enforcement circles. So we could bring people together that had skill sets but to your point, guys with your military background and experience that just love America and love the outdoors, it's like this perfect segue. They go, wait a minute. Okay, I really like being out there. I love wildlife, being a game warden, being alone, handling my stuff. That's great. But it's going to kind of be a push job after I was running, you know, high speed, low drag on, you know, team six, like you were, let's say. But then this met thing started. And when I got Frog, who's codenamed in the book, and asked him to be on the team, he goes, brother, I never thought I'd be pushing a carbine on a team like this, hunting a domestic terrorist. And we're only going to do that. And I'm going to go operational again. This is a dream come true. Yeah. Like, fuck yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah. I, I love yeah. wildlife. I'm a hunter. I got a young, young son that's growing up that I'm, you know, training to be a patriot and a conservationist. So there's an embedded just love and passion for what we do. And, you know, our mutual friend, Mike Ritland and, and other guys in the world hear this story and they're like, Oh man, I'd be on that team in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> no, it sounds great, man. Yeah, you know, let's and get as that long as team and get you guys on board. Yeah. Uh, Post retirement, right? <laughs> For sure. Um, you know, I threw this one in here: tranquilizer versus bullet, because I was never sure if you actually had to relocate any animals, and you, you know, it's kind of like, hey, yeah, I'd rather put them down, put them to sleep, and relocate them or kill them. But you went with bullet because, well, you're a man, and men love bullets, so. Yeah. And, and you know what? It, I think overall, when you look at depredation, public safety animals, we do a lot of tranking in California yeah. and there's certain places you got to do that. There's a, there's a political kickback on ever using a bullet on any public safety animal. Right. It's really interesting. If you look at the demographic of the sympathy you get for say a mountain lion that's killed a human. And I go back to those two women that were killed. And I remember there were basically, you know, lobby groups coming out and people of outrage where, the cat that did the killing got double the likes, double the support of, oh my gosh, why do you have to kill that poor cat? You know, well, <laughs> guys, yeah. look, I got a taste uh, it's not of something human we blood. really have to do at the end of the day, but the bottom line is with 6,000 plus cats in the old golden state and they're not getting hunted, we're going to have a problem. Yeah, and you yeah. know, human life is our main priority, right? That public safety law enforcement balance, like you pointed out. So you have that sentiment throughout certain parts of the country. So yeah. you have to tranquilize, but the bottom line is you come up here to, you know, go down to Texas, come up to Montana, and there will be some relocation of some animals that are federally protected. But by and large, if it's a public safety animal. We're going to kill it. 
the, the, the species is going to thrive and survive with good management. Like all of our big game species in Montana are thriving because we manage so well up here down in Texas. I've worked with your game wardens and your administrators down there and hunted and hung out and another great state, you know, and that's yeah. my bias given my experience, but it works, you know, and the science shows that it works regardless of where we sit emotionally on the issue. Yeah. It's funny. Well, it's usually it's, Either things get political or when the news cameras show up, then it's going to definitely be political. And it uh, seems yeah, that's, the, yeah. that's the issue when you talk about tranquilizers versus bullets. Um, animals versus humans. I thought for sure you were going to pick animals. You'd rather hang out with animals than hang out with humans, but you pick humans. So why is that? <laughs> yeah, well, ultimately, I got the public safety side of me. But yeah, I love Yeah, I got you. I love <laughs> you know, And I, I got a sympathetic side in all honesty, too. When you get a predator like a mountain lion or you get a problem black bear, you know, I'm kind of like, okay, well, they were here first and we've encroached. Yeah. And I, know, I know we're going to, you know, conquer the frontier and our apex predation with our technology and weapons. We're going to own the world. But, um, you know, that's my first duty, man. I've got to protect good people. Um, but I always have that empathy for the plight of any wild species out there because, I mean, they're, they're, they're just amazing, you know. And what, what's so hard to convince some people that don't see the, the benefits of conservation is, you know, we're, we're up here hunting whitetail and deer right now. But every single morning and every single day, whether you see an animal or not, you just you were so alive being out there, being in their world right. and just seeing so many animals you're going to pass up. If you're selectively hunting, if you're being, you know, you're being logical and you're being responsible, I think on helping the management, the process. And, um, you know, you and I both know true hunters, true conservationists work their asses off to hunt, harvest an animal. They put a ton of money into the program. All that money is the Pittman Robertson tax from, from gun sales to hunting licenses to conservation education throughout the nation. So it's actually the consumptive hunter that's saving Americans wildlife, you know, more so than anything there. It's actions versus words. They're putting their money where their mouth is and they're out there grinding every day and appreciating what we have left of our wildlands, whether they harvest something or not. And so I, I migrate to that, yeah. you know, and I just, I love that ethic. I think that ethos is, is a hardworking um, appreciative, not entitlement, but a privilege to be out there and have this. And, and, you know, we, it's depleting. I mean, it truly is. You look at just population, you know, increases, um, loss of green belts. And so that's, what's going to wipe out our wildlife more than anything else. If we don't manage them properly, it's not those of us out there with guns hunting a deer to eat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I find it, I find it interesting that people get upset when they see a post of, a guy with the game he just killed, right? Or yeah. a gal, you know, a hunter, a hunter who just hunted something. They take a picture with it and then they post it. And these are the same people who will buy, you know, the ground up beef at the grocery right. store. And I'm like, you want to talk about, you know, animals and justice for them <laughs> it's not it's not in the hunting world that you got to worry about it's that ground up beef you just bought that day so yeah, yeah. you know like it's uh it's it, it kind of cracks me up because then it just shows the ignorance of you know most of the people that get upset by those things but um yeah, you leave the hide on, you take a picture, people suddenly get all upset. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's interesting, you know, in um on the outreach education front without agency restrictions now, like like you guys, you know, getting out of NSW and, and, and building brands around education and outreach and speaking freely is I don't I don't sugarcoat that. You know, I mean you can see behind me, this is, you know, kind of kind of the lodge, if you will, the our Alamo and 
Um, those aren't trophies. Someone that says when you mount an animal and put it up there, it, you know, you're a slob hunter and you're bragging about a trophy because you got right, this right. great animal and it's bragging rights. And I call them conservation memories. I call them educational memories. And, you know, every animal that I mount, I look at with pride. I look at it with gratitude. I look at it as a blessing and, and a privilege. And, you know, that fed the family, that fed relatives on the family. It fed people that need it. Um, that meat went a long ways. And it's cool because you can look back at every one of those mounts or photos, like you said on a post. And just like our most standout missions in our careers, right? We remember exactly where we were, how it felt, how cold it was, what that sunrise looked like, how miserable that day was, and, you know, the ninth or 10th day of just grinding out there. And this big mature buck, you know, presented himself and gave you an opportunity. Um, and those are magical moments. Um, I forget a lot of other stuff because I'm post 50. It's just happening. But the nice <laughs> yeah. thing is everything on that wall behind me, brother, is I can tell you exactly what went down and write a narrative like another chapter because they're, they're so special and I don't take it for granted or lightly. And I think that's what all of us conservationists to put up those posts or, you know, have those, those, what people term as trophy rooms. They're good memories. They're yeah. appreciated rooms, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was alluding to, I think people would have a whole other, a whole other appreciation if they didn't have a grocery store. More with game warden John Norris after the break. All right. So then we got into dogs and cats. You went with dogs. I know why. I mean, dogs are, you know, yeah. man's best friend. Um, running shoes versus hiking boots. I pretty much knew you were probably going to pick hiking boots, even though you said it was kind of a split. Is that because are you are you a runner? Are you an avid runner? I am. Yeah, I was uh, not. I don't do distance anymore just because the body won't do it. I'm going to be 53 this weekend and, you know, did a lot of uh, a lot of big hikes like like you operationally did tons of several marathons, two Ironman triathlons and beat my body up pretty good on the running side of it, but I still run um, just shorter distance. So I have a lot of running shoes. And then ironically, I have a lot of hiking boots and everything in between is I got like keen sandals on, you know, 24 yeah, yeah. seven around that. I don't really wear any style shoes unless I got to dress up for a presentation <laughs> or go do something big. I just dress really comfortable. Cause man, uh, I don't know about you, man, but my feet get beat up even yeah. to this day. So I'm always running in flops and real casual, but both those are, are important, but definitely the hiking boots way out just because I'm in them all the time now for, uh, whether it be hunting conservation or, you know, still on the ground running with teams and we got to be in good boots to do it. And what do you, uh, what is your favorite boot you would say these days? You know, the I'm a big fan of Kenetrex now. Um, I'm using them on, on a lot of different levels. I'm still, I still like the, the upper end Solomons too, for the lightweight stuff, especially real hot climates when we're running med ops and that, you know, 95 to hundred degree heat throughout the summers in Cali. Um, and I'm also running some, like I said, some banners, some lightweight banners that just hold up. So yeah. but when I come up here and I'm doing anything in the cold, I'm doing anything in steep rock, shale, you know, goat or sheep or mule deer country. I run those Kenetrex just because they stick so well. And, uh, and we're starting hunting some really cold, cold days and those Kenetrex hold up. But there's there's a lot of good boots out there. But those those three are kind of my standouts. Perfect. Yeah. Listeners love hearing about the gear. Um, so. Let's, before we get into like one last thing, and I just love, you know, what is the dumbest thing you've seen people do or, you know, where you've had, you've shown up and you're just shaking your head like, what the fuck were you thinking? Have you had any of those standout moments, just people in the woods, the dumb shit that they've done? Yeah, it's, it's that thing where 
you watch, you know, you, you enjoy wildlife in the outdoors through streaming or through Disney shows and yeah. you go out and you're in a park and there's a black bear rolling around in a campground. And I've got families just sitting out there like, look at that awesome bear and getting food ready to like draw this thing in. And there's kids in camp. <laughs> and I, I was like in our El Dorado National Forest, like, you know, right after field training officer uh, training right out of the academy, Clint. And I'm seeing this and I'm going, okay, I just, where's the disconnect? Because even if you haven't had <laughs> my background, who logically does that on an apex predator that's over 300 pounds? It's just the, the matchup doesn't line up. Hey, you know? bear. Um, come on, bear. I've seen the same crap with mountain lions. I mean, we had a mountain lion in the Los Altos foothills years ago, right in the Silicon Valley, where I was kind of centered my whole life down there in the career. And we had a cat that was so comfortable with people, this big, mature male. He was like 150 pounds. He was just a, you know, just a dripping belly, big old super Tom, a gorgeous cat, just a monster. He was so comfortable with people not harassing him in this park that you just kind of hang out in this field where three hiking trails kind of intersected. And this went on for weeks where people weren't really reporting it because they were trying to get close to the cat and take selfies and do videos and all this crap, all this cat's just <laughs> sitting in the grass. And I'm like, you know, at one point this guy's going to go, these people are dumber than me and I'm going to take a shot. Yeah. So needless to say, we ended up going in after that cat because it did get threatening, you know, and it was starting to stalk and do that, that prance predatory uh, pre-jump on some kids hiking that trail. And we tracked it with dogs with our, you know, our uh, federal trapper. And we spent weeks trying to find this crazy cat before we had to kill it. But I, I saw a lot of that. And I still see a lot of that. You get that in Glacier Park right here, 90 minutes from where I'm at in Kalispell. Um and here you are with these grid problem grizzlies and they're rolling cars, they're interacting with people and people are not paying attention to that. And they're still putting themselves out there and they're getting killed. You know, yeah. there's kind of a score sheet that goes in Glacier National Park some years where grizzlies three, you know, tourist zero. I mean, <laughs> you got to respect the predator, man. man. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say that's the dumb. I've seen a lot of dumb stuff in my world. I'm sure as yeah, you yeah. have, but yeah. That's where I just, it takes the cake and it just, it never ceases to blow me away that people are still doing that. And, and again, they just don't have that education and background to know what this thing really is. Um, they're seeing it through a TV cinematic view that it ain't right. Yogi, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah, not talking smoke, about Yogi and boo boo. Smokey the bear. I mean, Ooh. Hey, he's just, there you go. Yeah. He's nice. He, yep, just he looks out for us. <laughs> uh, he gives us warnings when we can use our campfires and when we cannot. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right, so now let's dig in to you rolling around doing your job, and all of a sudden you're kind of looking and going, "This is this this is marijuana. This wait, this is a whole field of marijuana. This is acres of marijuana that oh wait, it's not legal. It's being run by uh, what are I mean, heck, they've been an enemy for how long now? The cartels, right? So yeah. They're in a different country, but they're they're growing exactly what they sell in our own country, which I'm guessing makes it a lot easier as far as all the cross border stuff. They don't even have to deal with it when they just start growing it in our own country. Right. right. So kind of walk me through, you know, the marijuana, finding it. And then how are they disseminating? How are they being able to pull this off right under everybody's nose? Yeah, it's a fascinating, you know, it's a fascinating and multi-layered criminal enterprise that I have 
a lot of respect for how deliberate they are and how good they are at what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have an absolute contempt for the violence and lack of humanity that they execute through their mindset and through their ethos of doing business. And it's so counter to what we as a domestic country of what we pride ourselves on. Um, and it's not digging. It's, it's not a dig on religion. It's not a dig on a, a you know, a, a different culture. It's got nothing to do with race. I mean, I've been called a racist because we're, you know, we're, we're attacking, we're stopping, trying to stop the cartels from destroying our wildlife resources and waterways in America and protect our public. And they just happen to be from Mexico. So that automatically makes me against that. And, you know, that's very short-sighted, obviously. Um, but the reality of it is, you know, I didn't, I didn't anticipate this problem when I, when I started my career as a game warden. Um, I grew up hunting and fishing. I never, ever saw a game warden through my youth when my dad and my uncles and my grandfather were teaching me how to hunt, how to fish. So I, uh, I got to the academy. And when I met a game warden to get me to change my major so I would be a game warden, um, I wanted to do the traditional stuff. I wanted to stop spotlighters that were jacking you know, animals at night illegally, that were taking too many fish, gillnet and creeks, um, anything environmental that had an impact. I wanted to go and fight. And then in uh, 2004, I'm back at home, uh, back in the Silicon Valley. I'm a fairly new game warden. I've only been on three, four years. And uh, I started down in Riverside County in Southern California. So in my first three years, I was drinking through a fire hose of learning to be a game warden at a young age in my early 20s, running alone all the time because I didn't know anybody yet, didn't have a canine yet. And I was getting the gang members, the Artanio and Serenos, the hardcores, the shooters from L.A., coming all the way over into the Inland Empire because they could get off the grid. They could get in these desert roads on these creeks and they would just bring AKs and all kinds of other heavy armament. And they spotlight everything all night long. They'd kill coyotes. They'd kill deer, rabbits. They'd gillnet creeks. Um, you know, narcotics were involved. Alcohol was involved. And I'm finding myself going up against these guys. And so not what I anticipated would be the entry into, you know, being a game warden, but it hardened me up real quick. You know, we did a lot of felony car stops. We took a lot of people out of gunpoint. Um, we didn't have any engagements down there. Fortunately, um, that would happen later, especially when we got into the cartel fight. Uh, but then I went home. So, you know, I'm, I'm at home, I'm doing the traditional stuff and everything's going great. And the one thing about working at home in the Silicon Valley Clint, is I was running across people I grew up with. So guys in high school, people in college, my family, my brothers and my sister's friends that were becoming informants and they were seeing stuff like, Oh yeah, John's home. This is great. So I'm getting tips on areas. I never even knew growing up. That was mm. great. I'm making case after case on all the traditional stuff. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we alluded to the, the story just a little bit. My buddy calls me up, who was a lifelong friend. And now he's a fisheries biologist doing his master's thesis, very outdoor savvy, very firearms proficient, um, always in the bush and says, Hey man, I'm, I'm doing a study, a five-year study on endangered species on this creek channel. And one channel is bone dry. It's mm. April. So someone's diverting water up top. Can you help me out with that? And I'm like, of course. So I figured it's a rancher. It's a farmer. It's a cattleman needing water. Maybe he's taking it illegally. So we go up to the top of the hill, throw him in the truck. We dive into that canyon and we saw what I described before. And, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. It just kind of came to mind like, this is freaking crazy. These are not typical poachers I've run across for the last five, six years. They're dressed in BDUs. They've got monikers I don't recognize, which I'd later learn are the patron saints, you know, kind of the derivatives of the Catholic saints and some of the ones they've even made up to worship their deities that kind of sanction this behavior. Um, and I'll get into that a little bit later, how similar to radicalized Islamic terrorists, how their mindset is so strong 
in the justification of what they're doing. Um, and we're the enemy. And they're praying to these deities of these patron saints to actually be invisible to law enforcement. So their business and their, if you, if you want to say, lack of a better word, their holy and sanctioned activity for good business is sanctioned. Hmm. Um, so I'm seeing all this and I'm seeing big guns and I'm seeing machetes and I'm seeing guys walking around with situational awareness when they're in the middle of a canyon, nine miles from a living soul. And there shouldn't be anybody up there, but obviously, you know, there's a little bit of knowledge of guilt there. And we get out of that situation without having an engagement. We turn it in. We bring a narcotics task force in. The game wardens aren't really legitimized as operatives to go handle this mission. So we get brought in as the guides to bring these tactical guys from various agencies to go raid this thing. And um, I knew right then, man, that this was a whole different level of environmental criminal and having kind of a tactical you know, fondness and all the personal training and, and training I was doing with other agencies and military guys like yourself I went, this is the number one enemy right now environmentally. And I said, and this was only in 04. And I said, and this is going to continue to be an environmental enemy that's going to get worse and worse and worse, which it did. Um, we, we went through that mission. I learned a lot. I learned we could have caught people a lot better if we had used, an, uh, really had apprehension as a goal. Um, I realized we destroyed a lot of plants, but we didn't do anything to clean up the environmental mess because there was no funding for it. And that was garbage collection for officers that had already done the, you know, kicking doors or busting through tents or whatever. And it was kind of above everybody. And I went, well, that's pretty fucked up. You know, we need to clean those damages or we've done nothing out here to prevent the problem or stop the problem from happening. And then in 05, the very next year, I'm working with that same cool group of uh, sheriffs that brought us in as equals and we get ambushed. There's three game wardens, three sheriff's deputies and an unarmed park ranger going into what we thought was a five to 7,000 plant trespass grow, all toxically tainted with these EPA banned nerve agents, anticoagulant poisons. I mentioned, we didn't know that yet. We weren't, we weren't privy to any of that knowledge of what these poisons were, but we were rating grow after grow with those in them. And basically these guys had been in play for about 10 years and five or six massive grow patches over a mile of ridgeline and on public land in the Silicon Valley foothills, and I shot a multi-million dollar tech company owner's homes and just wreaking havoc. Encampments with the satellite encampments, you know, tunnel trails that kind of came together in spider web, escape routes, uh, noisemakers, um, snares, you know, around camp to grab people or animals. Uh, we didn't know it, but we'd start to see them building punji pits just right out of Viet Cong tactics. Going back to the Vietnam conflict, we'd Crazy. see those in national parks in 2014, 2015, when our Met team was running hot. I mean, Clint, this is in California, in the Silicon Valley. And unbeknownst to me, because my, you know, right now my vision is like this. I'm kind of microcosmic in my little district as a lieutenant that's supervising 2.5 counties of the Bay Area. But I didn't know it was in, you know, 50 plus counties in California. And I didn't know at the time that these cartels were embedded like 20 other states growing cannabis and that they had any involvement in methamphetamine production nationally, human trafficking, synthetic fentanyl now that's killing a bunch of people. And, you know, it's gone into these, you know, dirty labs making these lookalike prescription opiates that or opioid painkillers that every third pill you just die in, in seconds, if not minutes. I didn't know it was that big. I just saw environmental criminals that were really heavily armed and I wanted to take them out. It mm. was that simple. Yeah. Um, and we got ambushed by one uh, SKS, you know, wielding gunman from he was in a fortified position. 
we were a tactical disadvantage with the early morning light going slightly uphill. They had a parapet dug where they were burying trash, but they had a really good overwatch position. They got one shot off. It went through both legs of my warden partner who had trained in the academy about six months before that. Great young man. So he's bleeding out of four holes. And now we're in a gunfight where I'm engaging the guy that's coming around the corner that shot him and is trying to finish the job while another sheriff's deputy is engaging a suspect that's got a sawed off shotgun on me and another warden at seven yards away through a canopy of brush and marijuana that we can't even see this bad guy. And before he's about to take a shot and take my head off snake, i.e. deputy Craig diver took that guy out. And I wouldn't be talking to you, brother, if he didn't make that move. So in that day, so we're working with three, really dialed in sheriff's deputies, all military veterans, all on their SWAT and sniper teams. We had a little bit of that going on internally with us and we had not really trained together adequately. We weren't compatible on radios yet. We didn't have all the stuff we needed. Um, the trauma gear that you guys were getting really dialed in, in those mid two thousands over in the sandbox. But after that gunfight shit changed quit. Mm-hmm. And essentially my partner survived that, but we kept him from bleeding out and he just held on by sheer will for three hours waiting for an air rescue. And he was slipping into shock. He, he was losing color. He, you know, we were running out of trauma stuff to stop the bleeding and I almost lost him. And what uh, were you, what were you carrying to stop the bleeding? Anything we had, we had a bunch of four by fours. We had some gauze and we had like one Israeli bandage. And this was before, you know, cat tourniquets, it, every, you know, everybody was carrying them. It's before we were carrying and now a second dirty tourniquet. None of that was going on. We didn't have anticoagulant, you know, we didn't have uh, the quick clot or the sea locks. You guys were just starting to use that over in the sandbox and it hadn't quite trickled over to us. But after that incident, and thankfully, you know, um, uh, mojo as he's called in in the first book when we talk about that this the second chapter goes into that ordeal and why it kind of changed our perception of what wildlife criminals can be and what game wardens are going to have to do to really take this thing on environmentally and not only for environmental reasons but for public safety reasons and just domestic security for our sovereignty if i really look at it deeper um so we had a lot of failures that day you mm-hmm. know we didn't know how much we were going to fail forward and learn from this but uh, my partner survived uh, he was out of work for about a year. Uh, it would have been a career ender for most guys, but he was so motivated when he was in shock plant and we were patching up his legs and we're holding a real tight perimeter. We got one, you know, one bad guy's down. There's another one crawling around that might be injured. We're too small of a team to even go out and counter track those guys and, and, and finish assessing the threat and see what we got to do. Um, he's looking at me like, Oh man, I can't believe it. I'm going to miss that deer baiting case next weekend. The following weekend was the deer opener and we had a great <laughs> That's typical. baiting yeah. operation. Oh, he was just gung ho. And yeah, I'm like, yeah. buddy, don't worry about that deer case. <laughs> we're we're going to get you healed and we're going to worry about deer hunting later, you know, but um, no, he came back with a vengeance a year to the day and came oh, that's back. Awesome. And now he's a highly decorated Lieutenant has a great family, still working it and going to finish out his career. But that, that changed that changed my world, man. It really did. It made me realize that all the other stuff is very important, but I want to focus on this if my, my admin will let me. So I started immersing with the sheriff's office a lot. I started stepping up the tactical training with, with all those guys a lot more. And we just kept having more incidences where another gunfight, no seven, um, that we almost, you know, took fire another go uh, gunfight in 2010 and then 2012. And it's just going on and on. And we hadn't really had the canine advent yet, right? And this is where mm. our mutual buddy, Mike Ritland, really resonated with this story of my canine handler and one of my best friends 
who's uh, currently a, a lieutenant, still operational and not far from, you know, finishing his career out. But his amazing canine, Phoebe, who just set records, I mean, in the country, not just in California, for a female Belgian Malinot of 70 pounds um, and became a real lifesaver. When I got to start working with them together and pull people from districts and we narrowly avoided a major gunfight, a major gunfight where it may not have fared well for me being so close to the action and having to deal with the dog bite and put that suspect down. And Brian's dealing with a, uh, an armed gunman that, you know, his dog's not even handling because she's got two threats now and we got one dog. That was a 2012 mission that I talked about in the new book, Hidden War, that made me realize, okay, I got to call the chiefs right now, give them a, a sit rep of what just went down. And we need to have this dog on every mission and we need to stop doing all this adjunct other work and if we're going to tackle this thing right, we need to tackle it as a unit and be dedicated. And with a really good chief that really believed in us, that was a mentor of mine in the academy way back in the 90s, um, we got that green light in 2013 when he became the leader of our, of our department. More with Game Warden and founder of Special Operations for the California Wildlife Department, John Norris, after the break. It was very unorthodox to do a team like that in California, especially of game wardens, you know, or wildlife officers. Yeah. So you can imagine how tickled I was that that happened, um, kind of blown away. And so now we didn't have any other patrol duties. We didn't have district boundaries. We reported straight to the chief main line up through special operations division. And we hit the ground running, man. We hit the ground running relentlessly for that whole first year, just had to prove ourselves and it was mission after mission. It was millions of poison plants eradicated, hundreds and hundreds of cartel bad guy arrests, tons of weapons, um, you know, uh, marijuana plants, illegal marijuana plants that were taking hundreds of millions, if not billions, gallons of water a year. Uh, and this is through one of the peak droughts that we had in California that's now happening again in Cali as, as it is in other states. So when all that happened, I realized, Hey man, I mean, we're never going to stop it. You know, it's like stopping terrorism, right? Um, we're going to fight it the best we can and put the biggest dent in it. We can. Uh, and that was our, that was our mission. That was basically our, our motto, you know, bite off what you can for every grow we raid. We know we're stopping some environmental damage and we know we're taking some bad people. that are going to do some real bad shit to our public, whether they're immersed in other cartel crimes or with this poison weed. Um, and we put up a lot of numbers, you know, but by no means are we getting all of it. And that team that I co-developed and, and ran, you know, for the first six years, they're running crazy and mm. COVID didn't slow it down. And I'm sure, you know, I, I know, I know you probably addressed this in the past a little bit, but these cartel groups, when you have a worldwide pandemic, they're like, yeah, it's Disneyland, oh, man. Yeah. It's woods are empty of law enforcement. Yeah. We call it that culture of chaos in the cartel world. And, Clint, these guys just have gone crazy since COVID dropped. I mean, all the hangups of agencies not getting able to get out there for half a season because of exposure issues and, and, and PPEs and protective equipment. And so it didn't slow down. It just increased and it's still going on and still ramped up. And, uh, and now we just continue the fight. And, you know, to think that that developed for a career I thought was going to be pretty traditional, I feel really lucky to have done what I've done. And I feel really lucky to be, you know, that pin mightier than sword mentality now, like the stuff you're doing after being operational, just teaching people being, you know, trying to get this hidden war story out there that gets real hot attention for a minute. And then something else comes up and how domestically embedded it is and how much of a problem it is for our entire country and what we're going to face in the future. 
regardless of where we go politically, you know, um, it, it's a good place to be. And they can't talk much because they're pretty much gagged down in California from sharing with the media, uh, as a lot of teams are. But I can talk and the guys need to have their story told. And I think for the American public, we got we got to just educate on it. So people are aware, one, they're not ingesting this crap and poison and being complicit in this, you know, sinister, uh, you know, cartel criminal enterprise network. But so they can help be some eyes and ears out there, be part of what we call our, you know, our thin green line, be those eyes and ears and, you know, turn it in if you see it in the woods and to what you teach so well situational awareness and preparedness if you run across a growth site out in these wooded areas because there's a good chance you might and not only in california but many other states yeah no that's good to know and who would have thought right here in our own backyard right um Dude, I no I'm, idea. Yeah. I'm curious it, you know and this is this might be boring to the listeners but i'm just curious and you can give me the short answer is there is a is there a regulatory or a group of people or i don't know what you would call it an organization that prevents the illegal growers from ending up in the legal stores not really i mean there's there's some infrastructure set in place right now and it's basically us on the ground of getting the poison product out of the woods or out of a illegal greenhouse on private land indoors before it hits dispensaries um since we regulated and this is something i go into and in, in hid more in the new book toward the end yeah uh we Voted into effect Prop 64, the recreational, you know, mm -hmm. uh, a marijuana law, cannabis law, um, late 2016 and 2017. So I had a couple of years operational after that law was passed. And, you know, the very short-sighted concept, not only within certain agency folks that we work in within agency and other supervisors and other traditional game wardens, but also other regulatory groups, it's like, you know, this special special operations group you guys built and all the whiz bang toys and all the work you're doing and all the numbers you're putting up, it's all for naught because now it's regulated. Mm. You know, the cartels are going to stop. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, not unless, you know, cartels are selling it to the dispensers. So exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and like, I, like I really was, I, I outlined it. I said, it's not that we regulated. I'm all for regulation done smarter, you know, and, and we've talked about this in a few other shows where I say, look, if you're going to regulate, regulate legitimately, federally, yeah. regulate it with purity standards, make it affordable, you know, do it like the wine or tobacco industry. And that'll stop or significantly reduce the cartel threat from doing this. But it's not going to stop them from doing all the white dope stuff or the trafficking. But at least maybe our woods will be a little more protected. Water will be preserved. And, you know, kids hiking with their parents may not run across an AK-47 armed gunman. Um so when I look at all of that, um, there are a lot of regulatory agencies like our agency, like Waterboard, like, um, you know, cannabis um, regulatory groups that are popping up. Uh, but there's so much of this stuff in demand. It's still making it into some legitimate areas, into a dispensary. Very rarely now we're finding out, but it's not getting out of the black market in any way because it's about a quarter to a fifth of the price of good dispensary cannabis that's been inspected um, it's not using, or, you know, it's, it's organic. It's not uh, using pesticides, but those are expensive operations, yeah. you know, and those so people are paying. Yeah. yeah. So it's still attractive to the very same people that they've been selling to for decades. Yeah. And especially right? for the in most part states. Yeah. Right. And, it, yeah. And, it, and especially in unregulated states where there is no market, you know, legal market. Right. So kids in the Midwest, maybe medicinal patients, recreational users in the Eastern seaboard, um, so no, it, it we just really made a dent. Yeah. It hasn't made a dent in, no. 
in how much money they make. No. And then, and then sadly, the thing we see that I also, you know, dissect that like, let's not make this mistake again, if you're another state, um, because I thought with us in California as a cannabis state and being a focal point for all these other countries and other states within our union, looking at it, I said, guys, you know, we can do this right, or we can do this wrong. And for the public land trespass grower, that law by some crazy event, how this happened, I don't know. Cause I, did presentations to legislatures, the governor's group, to cannabis groups, grower groups, conservation groups, you name it. I said, okay, we know it's coming. Regulation's coming, but let's do it the right way. Mm. Ultimately, I had to go, why did you water down a felony violation for a cartel trespass grower to a misdemeanor and then to an infraction if it's a juvenile cartel grower, which they come up in the organization very young. So agencies clean are like, you think we're going to put a tactical unit together, risk getting into gunfights for a misdemeanor that'll never go through court. No jury is going to be sympathetic to this. So we on the Met front as game wardens are faced with being one of the very few only teams left after we regulated to fight these cartel groups. And the way we were able to, you know, get around the, the end around was using environmental statutes like water poisoning and pollution and these EPA banned poisons that are a felony to possess in our country anywhere, especially without a, a limited use permit that you can't even get now. That's how we got the bite back in those prosecutorial crimes. We didn't make it about cannabis because cannabis isn't the problem. It's this black market criminal yeah, violence. That's insane. That it's generating. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's so it, it just made no sense. And it still <laughs> doesn't. And people still don't fully know it. So I'm grateful to, you know, to you for, for bringing it up tonight so we can share it with some more people. It's great, man. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Well, you got a good fight going. You've got some great books out. Um, but we're going to do a review at the end of uh, where people can find your books and find you. But let's uh, let's dive into your hypothetical survival scenario. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> I know you've been oh, I hope I can survive this one, man. This is, when the, this is when the scary music starts playing. Okay. More with Game Warden John Norris after the break. Here we go. Um, for this scenario, you are on a little ski trip. Okay. okay. Are, you, are you an avid skier? I am a skier. All yeah. right, here we go. This is perfect. Uh, you're going to be skiing on the backcountry slopes, you know, so some uncharted territory. It's okay. dangerous, but you like danger. So first <laughs> question, starting out easy here, okay? All right. A, chat with some locals before you hit the slopes, or B, just get on the lift quickly and get started before the day gets away from you. No. <laughs> hey, thanks for making that one a little uh, easing me in. But yeah, no, I'm, de I'm definitely going to talk to the locals. And I'm assuming, well, I'm not even going to make an assumption, but whether I'm alone or not, we're going to talk to some locals and make sure people know where the hell we're going to be. There you go. Yeah. yeah. And you want to know what, what, where is the danger zones, right? Yep. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, obviously you want to talk to locals locals know what's going on they've the they know exactly where to go and where not to go which is most important now that you've gathered some of that intel uh from the locals you're ready to hit the slope so next do you a uh do a dummy check and make sure that you did not forget any supplies you may need or b just hydrate a little bit and uh get the day going <laughs> No, man, I'm a, I do a lot of stuff in snow besides, you know, the skiing and stuff. And yeah, 
besides the fun stuff (laughs) yeah yeah that that whole hunting thing and you know the the high country hunting and stuff like that and 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 you and i both know snow country can be it can it can turn quick oh yeah you know it can absolutely turn quick um avalanche potential um you're you're masked in the snow even with bright colors if you get buried or you get some of that timber it's a lot harder to find people in snow i know that going in so i'm absolutely going to double check my kit yeah um i i tend to overpack when i ski with stuff that most skiers don't take because i want to know if i'm on the backside of anything and i got to stick it out for a day or a night hopefully not that we're that we're gonna we're gonna be able to survive that because it can turn turn really bad with that cold um and that isolation quick yeah yeah no doubt um so yes you got that correct uh water is always good but let's face it uh you got to make sure your gear is good to go supplies are in check and uh, one of those things, I don't know if you carry them. Do you carry any of the avalanche trans transceivers or, you know, the avalanche uh, warning system, avalanche uh, beacons, if you will, so that you can be found? Have you ever dealt with any of that technology? I have, especially when we're in an area that could be an avalanche potential. And I haven't skied or hunted in areas at the time of year where there is a big avalanche potential. But in the few times I have, I've been with someone that's had one of those and been slightly familiar with how to use it, but I always run, um, an inreach, a Garmin now. Yeah. Those and are awesome. They, they changed the game. And, you yeah. know, I was one of those holdouts quite honestly, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to kick my ass for this appropriately. So, but <laughs> my family here in Montana, you know, we're uh, s- several aunts and uncles still are, are here on our spread and everybody does stuff alone so much, mm-hmm. you know, almost too much. People kind of think, why do you guys hunt alone? Why do you do this? Well, you always have a partner, um, and it's telling a relative where you're going to be, what trailhead you're going to be, but you could be anywhere and anything could go sideways, especially in these really remote cabinet mountains, the yak. I mean, everything around us is, is pretty brutal. And I finally broke down a couple years ago when I retired because I had to give up the super cool GPS units I had when I was issued from mm-hmm. the next team. But now I got the, the inReach and that thing is just a game changer. The confidence it inspires, um, ease of use off of the, off of the cell phone to text things, you know, with the right, I, yeah. I, I subscribe to, you know, Garmin's uh, monthly plan for updates and, and everything you need to have out there, especially if you're running alone, that thing's a godsend, but yeah, like the avalanche beacon, um, those are important, really important. Yeah. Without a doubt. I, I, the, uh, that was, I always tell people, that was the best purchase Garmin made was buying out yep. in reach and getting that technology. Um, for those of you who don't know, InReach, check it out. I mean, we don't, you know, obviously have anything going with Garmin, but you want a little nice device that allows you two-way communication. You can put pre, uh, pre-loaded uh, comms in there so that you don't have to worry about doing anything other than hitting a button and it'll say, I need help. It does SOS. It allows family and friends to log in and track you on a map and know exactly where you are, where you stopped, what you've been doing, the speed you're going, you name it. Um, and you know, uh, if you're just wanting to check and see where your, uh, your wife's going at night, you know, you can put the in reach <laughs> under the driver's seat and, uh, see where that thing's going all day long. Okay. Okay. Um, so continuing on with your scenario, um, all right. So you grab, you know, the, uh, we'll just call it a tracking device of some sort, an avalanche transceiver of some sort. And, uh, so what are you going to do with it? Are you going to attach it to your body or are you going to put it in the top pouch of your backpack? Which is the better choice? I'm going to put it in the top pouch, uh, top pouch of the backpack simply because if I tumble in an avalanche, man, and that thing's external, I'm probably going to lose it. 
Um, it, it's kind of one of those things that I might need it externally to get to it quickly, but I've been upside down in snow a few times, you know, on both ski trips and hunting trips. So I'm going to favor that right, wrong or different, at least initially. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a little, that's both answers are, that's one of those where both answers are kind of sort of correct. Um, if you were to look at like a traditional, you know, uh, avalanche transceiver and the instructions they'll tell you to keep it on your body just in case you get separated from your backpack sure um, and as you know once you start dump, tumbling and g-force I, I mean you have shoes fly off if you're tumbling fast enough and uh, a backpack is no different um, but i i like your reasoning too because these days and i know with my packs you know i make sure that chest strap is there most people yes. let that thing go but as long as you've got that there and you've got everything cinched down and if you've got an adventure pack on of any sort that also has the waist uh you've got that attached so you know it's basically like a five-point harness and that's not that's gonna that's probably not gonna come off your back but um you want that uh you want any of your survival items life support items closest to your body at all times so that way we call it first line gear right yeah, yeah i'm sure you guys in your workspace it. and immediately accessible yeah, yeah. right yeah. um okay so so you get out uh you get out on the slopes uh you're skiing down the mountain when yes an avalanche occurs and a wall of snow is gaining from behind okay <laughs> yeah. so do you a compress yourself and become more aerodynamic uh so that you get down the slope faster right you know you're bent over going into full-on olympic mode or b move to the flanks of the slope while you can yeah i'm gonna try to get to the flanks That's i'm gonna right. try to get to the flanks i'm gonna try to get the cover whether it be rock or timber because no matter how fast that snow's going i know working in dense timber i can dissipate it or the side can I'm yeah. just going to try to get out of that ballistic snow cannon coming at me. Yeah, that's right. Yep, you nailed it. It's uh, getting to the flanks, basically moving perpendicular. You're not going to outrun or outski right. an avalanche. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's always funny. It's like, you know, people think, you know, I went over to Pamplona one year and did uh, running with the bulls. And it's funny, you have to remind people that it's running with. You're never going to outrun them. You're running with the bulls. <laughs> and yeah, a, and yeah. an avalanche is pretty much the same. It's going to get you, uh, whether you like it or not. So go perpendicular, get to the flanks, and uh, take cover. Yeah. Um, okay, good job. So the snow is um, the snow is going to be funneled you know, down the slope, potentially carrying less momentum and mass uh, on the sidelines, and that's the reason why you want to head there. The mass of the sm snow is now coming and rushing by you, okay? So do you, A, jam a ski pole into the ground and try to stabilize yourself, or B, grab the tree that's next to you? Oh, man, that's that's a, a close one. I'm going to try to grab the tree if it's of significant diameter. That's right. Um, a ski pole is going to be real tenuous at best. Um, it, it may not even grab, but if I can get around a good, you know, spruce or conifer or whatever, that's eight to 10 or even more inches of diameter, it's going to take a lot of snow to push me off of that thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's, uh, you know, when you've got that much coming at you, it's unavoidable and, yeah. uh, you're looking at your ski pole and you're looking at a tree that's rooted into the ground, you know, the decision becomes real easy. I'll go with the tree as well. Um, good job. So, uh, next uh let's see here um 
Yeah, so from being you, basically the whole goal is to not get swept away and not get buried. Right. Uh, so do next, do you a tie yourself to the tree using the straps off your backpack, or b ditch the pack, the skis, and the in the ski poles and any excess gear at this point. That's a good one, man. But I I don't think I want to ditch my gear at this point. I want to keep that pack close because there's there's going to be essential survival pieces in it. So. I'm going to hold on to that pack if I can, definitely. Yeah, so you got a little bit of combination of both answers, and I understand where you're coming from. Um, You know, coming from the experts, you know, these uh, avalanche guys, they'll tell you, like, you definitely want to get rid of, like, what equivalent – it's the equivalent of drag, right? Makes sense, yeah. Yeah, if I'm standing still and something's going past me, you're still – if you have a bunch of items on you that can get caught and then pull you – you're basically getting rid of all that and want to be as slick and as streamlined as possible. Um, and I would say, yeah, if you can get rid of everything but maintain, like, if your life support's in that pack, then by all means, keep the pack for as long as you can. Um, <clears throat> but the snow, just like water, will grab onto all those items and use right. it to, the, to its advantage. Um, so the rush is now coming down strong. And uh, you are losing grip of the tree, all right? So do you, A, try to climb the tree, or B, start going into more of a swimming motion and stay on top of the moving snow? Oh, man, I'm going to try to get... High ground is always beneficial, man. (laughs) I'm going to try to get some level of high ground and stay above it if I can, because if I get caught in that swim, I think I'm going to get buried. And it's going to kind of depend on what I can do on that tree or not, how stable it is, how big it is. If it's an insignificant tree, I may not have that opportunity. I'm just going to have to swim with the flow and try to stay topside, but I'm going to try to get some high ground if I can. Yeah. I think that's a good price of elimination. Ultimately the tree gives away and yeah, you are swimming. And yep. this is the other reason why you kind of jettison some stuff. Cause it's worst case scenario and you don't know if that's going to happen or not. So that's why you yeah. get rid of stuff. And now you just want to stay on top. You don't want to get buried. Um, so, you know, trying to get up a tree, once again, it's a timely event. And right. you're not going to out-climb an avalanche coming at you, right? Um, heck, you look at, like, hurricanes at Katrina and stuff. I mean, the water was rising so fast, people didn't even have time to get to the top of their house. Good point, man. Uh, yeah, It's crazy, right? I mean, Mother Nature, man, she don't give two shits about you. <laughs> no. It's still behaving the same way when it's really ripping. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That, that snow's coming in. It's a wall. And that wall might be just as high as the tree you're trying to climb up. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah. you want to try and swim, swim, swim. Um, okay. So, now, okay, as you swim with the rush, it starts to become overwhelming, all right? It's just getting worse for you. Sorry. Uh, do you, A, keep your arms at your side? You know, that probably sounds stupid. Or, B, put your hands out in front of your face. Man, I'm going to put them out in front of my face to protect my face, my eyes, my nose, my senses, and uh, try to let the, you know, try to make that helmet out of my hands and, and protect the sensories I'm going to need, you know, out That's of those right. Yeah. yeah, you're protecting your head, but even more importantly, you've got your hands already there to create an air pocket so that you can breathe when everything comes to a stop. Right here, right? gotcha. Yeah. yeah, so you're creating, a, you're basically thinking ahead and going, okay, i got to create a cavity for myself. Yeah. Um, nice. You know, this is something that, I mean, you really got to be thinking, right? Uh, but 
Um, so you're moving. Uh, breathing, obviously, is going to become all of a sudden the most important thing in your life. And by placing your hands in front of your face, uh, as you get buried, you can create that air pocket and uh, hopefully breathe for at least a little while in order to figure out next which way is up. Yeah, the precipitation comes to a halt, right? So all of that snow stops, and now you're just buried in the snow. Um, so yeah. do you, A, dig in the direction your head is facing, or use your senses to determine which way is up? I'm going to try to use my senses to determine which yeah. way is up, because my head could be completely inverted. So I'm going to look for things like you know available light for the, from the surface, being maybe a little lighter, something ambient. Yeah some gravity if i've created that air pocket and i'm having things drop on me so i'm going to know basically gravity is going to maybe tell me which way is up so to speak in that realm and just do the best i can with what i can see and feel yeah um, you're dead on man trust where i'm at yeah that's right yeah. it's uh you know vertigo you've been tumbling you're going to have a lot of sensory issues but you're going to use them after you look listen and feel take a moment stay calm and figure out which way is up You'll be able to feel blood flow. If it's in your head, then you know you're upside down. Another yeah. way um, is to observe which way the snot is running out of your face, right? <laughs> That's a good so, one. Like or that, the yeah. tears in your <laughs> eyes. If they're running up your forehead, well, then something is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Things so, are, the, the mystery spot isn't adding up, man. Pay yeah. attention. That's if, a good one. Man. If like all it. the snot is flowing down toward your left ear, then you might be sideways. <laughs> I don't know, but... These are the things that you have to really start paying attention to, and they're usually just right there in your face, common sense stuff, but you go into a panic, and you know we know how contagious panic can be, yes. and it can just destroy you, and you end up making bad decisions followed by bad actions, and then you're dead, so that's not a good place to be. Yeah. Um, yes, so snot, people, snot. Which way is your snot going? You know, and like we talked about with the uh, first line gear, right? You've got all your life support items. I'll tell you what, if you can get to a pocket and then that pocket is a lighter, you can also just turn, flip that lighter on and whichever way the flame goes is up, right? Go towards the flame. Yeah. Um, but if you start try and start that thing and you're burning your thumb off, then you're probably upside down. <laughs> all right. Um, nice. Okay. All right, so after determining which way is up, do you, A, punch an air channel from your face upward, or B, try to get upside down and kick the snow above you? <laughs> I'm going to try to punch an air channel. There you go. Yeah, yes. time is kind of going to be of the essence, and we're not going to get inverted in an igloo. That just that doesn't sound... Uh, doesn't sound rewarding. No. <laughs> Getting upside down uh, when you're surrounded by snow is going to be very difficult anyway. That's good. Um, it's like being in a trunk of a car. It's not like you've got yeah. the space to sit here and do much. Um, but, yeah, punching up, uh, obviously, will create more of an air channel, get you closer to the surface, uh, and hopefully make it easier for the rescue teams to uh, find you and dig their way to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going upside down just doesn't make sense. And, uh, yeah, so you missed two which is still passing and uh, congratulations you yeah. have survived this podcast <laughs> barely but i made it <laughs> hey uh oh man that's cool brother and i gotta say that is a killer scenario you pointed out because our snow is just starting to fall 
Yeah. We're going to get into these rut hunts where it's going to be thick snow in remote areas. And then our ski season on a remote mountain starts in about a month around Christmas. Yeah. And yeah. We have mountains up here that maybe see 300 people a day and you get on that backside and you disappear in that, those tree skiing and ski patrol is going to sweep that at the end of the day. Maybe it's very easy to get lost in the shuffle that's and we're right about to jump into that so uh that's a good one i learned a lot from that man oh, good you. man it's oh, uh you know wow. we, we had this light bulb go off we're like we should probably make the scenarios match the seasons we're rolling into so yeah, yeah anyway we saved the zombies for uh, halloween and we got the avalanches <laughs> for the winter so um <laughs> but you did a great job and uh so to close it out here, where can it people learn more about you, everything that you've got going on, your books, everything? Where, where can we go? Where can we find you? Yeah, a couple of things. And I've, I've, I've got a copy. And yours, yours is going to land any day, man, because I just got new inventory. But here's more, yeah, I'm looking book. forward to that. Yeah, and I, uh, I'm i looking forward to diving into more of yours. But anyway, guys, this is Hidden War. It's available in hardcover with all the cool pictures and all the graphics. We also got it on Audible which is pretty cool, Clint. I got to read for it myself and, and work with a, a billboard record artist producer for the score. And he did a real nice sound effects were appropriate with the canines and the helicopters and the flowing water. So it, Oh, it, cool. Yeah. It really sets the, it sets the dark tone of what we're fighting. You know, he did a really good job and it's available on Kindle. We're probably going to have a second um, in the second edition of this run. We're, we're going to see a little bit of added material. You know, it's looking really good that way. You guys can um, get it on Amazon, any version. You can also reach out to me through my website, which is just johnnorris.com, J-O-H-N-N-O-R-E-S.com. It'll get you, to my, uh, get you to my email if you want personalized copies. A lot of folks like them personalized as we like yours, buddy. And one thing I'm doing is I have a signature line of blades. It's really cool. I know you're a blade guy. Oh, yeah. uh, and I love the blades you're working with, but I partnered with uh, Mike Bellacamp from V Knives, who was the original founder of the Spiderco factory, ran their factory for about 11 years in Golden, Colorado, has his own brand now. And we've got uh, the Thin Green Line Trailblazer. Nice. And this was the knife, the folder bud that I uh, kind of dreamed of carrying. I carried about probably 15 different knives through my careers in the folder, but it's got the carbide glass breaker, the replaceable razor blade for the uh, seatbelt harness cutter. Yeah. And when you close that D2 steel drop point or partially serrated, you're cutting off of the razor blade if you've got to get out of harness for survival stuff without harming that really cool 17-degree edge we've got on our real sharp D2 steel main blade. Um, yeah, it's fast action, got a belt clip, a lanyard loop, good impact tool, but a lanyard for you know operational guys. And we have them in black with the thin green line accoutrement for our thin green line of conservation military game wardens as well, and an OD green. Um, and I do bundle packs, basically a thin green line triple threat. If anybody wants a blade and a personalized book and a little thin green line extra, we can make that happen. Look personally. at you. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Man. I'm trying to mix it up and get yeah. it out there. And the other thing, and I, I haven't really shared this. Uh, we talked, we dropped a little bit of hints. We filmed the commercials, but they haven't dropped because these blades won't be available till early next year. But I got a line of signature fixed blades, Clint, that I think you're going to dig and our listeners will. And it started with just having that full-size fixed blade of, of appropriate size, battle blade to do everything, got to be a drop point for skinning, gut and field dressing. Our lanyard is an impact, but it's also a quarter-inch driver with tools if you yeah. need it. Um, we also, on our injection molded sheath, and I, I like this from the standpoint of having a sharpener built in. Oh, yeah. We can sharpen all of our folders or our fixed blade. 
Love so it. that is the, uh, that's the black handle and you can't really see with the light, but we got our thin green line accoutrement there. Yeah. Yeah. For what you and I like to do. And we got to run an OD green one, man, for, for the kit. <laughs> yeah. so we got the OD green handled one with the G10 working. And again, that little sharpener just works great. That is cool. That's a great idea. Putting the, the sharpening capability right there on the sheath. Yeah. Yeah. And on all our, all our sheaths too, man, we're set up for Molly. We're set up for standard belt, whatever. This is kind of a, the next plate I'm going to show you. I'm really stoked about because this was not in the plan, but it was from military and LE demand when uh, the, the first run of a thousand folders that we dropped um, dropped during COVID. But everybody wanted, and I, I know I've seen this following you, but having a small everyday survival, oh shit blade that can kind of do everything, but it could be very concealed and hidden. So we developed um, the Delta Trailblazer. Delta is the name of our sniper team um, for Met that we formed up. And this is a very similar a D2 steel blade profile to the folder, but yeah. smaller. And on the scale handles, you've got the thin green line, black G10 going, but they're removable with the tool that we include to basically just skeletonize that bad boy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wrapping 550. And then we have a vacuum inducted, really streamlined Kydex case with the same mount. To use it on Molly, use it on a belt, but also take it off and tape it to a kit. It's just going to be, it's, it's becoming my ski knife. Anytime I'm harnessing, if I'm still working out of ships, when I'm training other teams. Um, and the other thing I like about it, we didn't really see this coming. We, we made it for the military LE first responder community, but it's a heck of a field dressing skin and knife to get into cavities. And, you know, when you're really doing fine skinning. And uh, that, you know, D2 steel is just a working steel, robust. It holds an edge and you can beat the crap out of it. So um, they're, they're a real affordable price point. We're going to have those available this spring and I'll do some bundle packs, some mega packs and discount a whole, whole, whole set of blades. If people want the full Monty, so to speak. Yeah. So yeah. Love it, man. That's a, yeah. that was the best damn plug I've ever heard. Good job, John. <laughs> <laughs> so books, Thanks. knives, all of that at, uh, that's John Norris.com and that's N O R E S super easy. Make yep. sure you go check them out. John, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate your insight, your knowledge. You're obviously a master of your craft and uh, appreciate everything you've done for the United States. Thank you for your service and continued service. And uh, obviously, great. Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Good to meet you firsthand and uh, look forward to talking again, Clint. Stay yeah. safe. You too, buddy. And uh, like I always say, keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. And until next time. Be safe out there. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio, I'm Clint Emerson. <laughs>